Hello, and welcome to Story and Fiction Podcast number 19, the first installment of the award-winning novel, The Surgeon's Wife, read by the author. Mike Boudreau is the chief of surgery at a New Orleans hospital. Clayton Otherson, an influential surgeon, is making life-threatening mistakes in surgery, and Mike must discipline him. Mike tries to help his friend, but other colleagues demand Clayton stop surgery. Catherine, Clayton's wife, falls in love with Mike, and Clayton becomes obsessed with revenge against Catherine. Mike and Catherine struggle to create a future together, rejected by a disdainful New Orleans society. I'm Bill Coles, your host. So let's get started with installment one of The Surgeon's Wife. Chapter One New Orleans, 2003. Mike Boudreau's gloved hands worked quickly and decisively to finish a gallbladder in operating room five. Paul Smythe, the anesthesiologist, entered from the corridor through swinging double doors. Trouble in seven, he said, his usually calm voice edged with urgency. Boudreau's hands didn't hesitate in the measured motions of the instrument tie. The tooth forceps gripped the tissue and with a twist of the needle holder, the needle passed cleanly through with little resistance. Who is it? Mike asked Paul, without taking his eyes off the field. Clayton. He asked for me, Mike said. Paul didn't answer, but stared directly until Boudreau met his gaze, and then he glanced in the direction of room seven. Boudreau finished one more tie and handed the instruments to the resident assistant. In seconds, he was in room seven. Except for respirators and monitors, the room was silent. Clayton was bent over the OR table, his usual ruddy complexion now pale below the line of the blue surgical cap. The circulator stared at the floor, avoiding eye contact. Suction, Clayton said with a tenuous voice. The scrub nurse passed the instrument with a hesitant, uncertain motion, sweat beating on his forehead. Clayton pressed a sponge up into the wound, pulled it away, then activated the suction. The resident gripped the retractors with a fine tremor that faintly rippled the tissue held by the blade, his anxious eyes diverted from the field. Boudreaux moved to the table, and the assistant shifted toward the foot of the table to give him room to see without breaking sterility. He couldn't see any anatomy with the blood. He knew somewhere a vessel had been cut. They needed better exposure. There was no time to re-scrub. From sterile packages, the circulator dropped gown and gloves on a back table. Mike gowned and re-gloved, waiting for a look from Clayton. But Clayton worked mechanically with his eyes down, refusing to acknowledge his presence. This was Clayton Otherson, his professor and mentor during training, nationally prominent for his bold innovations and unmatched results for so many years his senior partner for the last 12 years, now floundering in indecision, unable to find the right choices to save his patient's life. Unthinkable. The anesthetist, her face frustrated and angry, turned the monitor so Mike could see. The pulse was 158. I think I got it, Clayton mumbled. Denial. The most dangerous response of the impaired physician. More blood's coming, Paul said directly to Mike, making adjustments to an IV. 
his gaze intent and away from Clayton. With a firm nudge, Mike moved the resident further down away from the action. Clayton glared at him for the first time with red, roomy eyes. Mike repositioned the retractors in the resident's hands, opening the abdominal wall incision by three inches. Emerging thick layers of fat gleamed above pools of arterial blood that had lost its healthy hue. Suction and irrigation isolated the artery that was cut through. With the tie, Mike stopped the bleeding. He could feel Clayton's humiliation, the humiliation of needing help that eroded confidence and self-image, and that would never fade. But this was no time for sympathy. Clayton was in no condition to continue, and with his eyes Mike indicated to the resident to act as assistant from his position without making Clayton move away from the table. With the bleeding sources stopped and the field dry, Mike finished the repair and started closure. Clayton left the table to take off his gown and leaned against a back wall, his head down. The anesthetist turned a stopcock on an IV line and adjusted gas flow percentages. She glanced at Mike with relief. The monitors changed pace slightly. As the resident completed the last sutures, Mike waited to be sure the blood pressure was safe and then told the resident to remove the drapes and dress the incision. I'll dictate, Clayton said to the resident without looking at Mike. Clayton yearned to turn back the clock to be in control again. Mike paused before leaving, but there was nothing he could say to comfort Clayton, and he hurried out of the room. At seven o'clock that evening, on the clinic administrative floor, Mike looked up as his office door opened without a knock. Paul Smythe, the anesthesiologist, handed him a folder with four stapled sheets of paper. It's an incident report, Paul said, on Otherson. Hey, take it to Pat or Margaret or Paul, Mike said. Paul looked worried and angry. Read the goddamn report, Mike. I don't want any errors. The report detailed Clayton's morning case. Mike looked up when he'd finished. Was this really necessary? He's impaired, Boudreaux. If you see something I've written that's not right, change it. You can't know he's impaired, Paul. One case is not a trend, and it's a tricky label to put on any surgeon. This is not the first. I've seen others. He doesn't know he's in trouble, and then he freezes. He's the best there is. I've spent a career trying to achieve what he has. Was the best. He's dangerous, Boudreaux. I don't know why, but he needs to take a break. Mike stood. Hold the report, Mike said. I'll talk to him. Investigate if there's a problem. Paul stared defiantly. That's not the way I'm going to handle this, he said. He did not like Clayton, nor most surgeons for that matter, and he thought Clayton's privileges should be suspended based on poor performance. But this was not personal. Mike knew Paul cared for his patients, not just his reputation. Paul took back the pages and lined them up by tapping the bottom edges on the desk. His brow creased. Don't try to bury this, Boudreaux, he said. Mike glared. I'm not your problem, Paul. Stay civil. You're chief of service with a duty to act. I'm not dishonest. Paul frowned and shook his head slowly. I misspoke, he said. You'll do what's right. But he needs to step down, and I don't see him doing that on his own.
Chapter 2 The rain slapped sheets across the windshield, blurring the yellow glow of the streetlights. Mike heard the clang of the St. Charles streetcar in the median less than a hundred feet from the street, but he could not see it in the darkness. This was upscale New Orleans, where blocks of multi-million dollar houses, mostly unfriendly and pretentious, hunkered among surrounding sections of third-world-style poverty shacks teeming with angry, sick people. He'd long ago started to refuse mostly stand-up parties, the leaning on a $100,000 grand pianos where Mozart or Chopin were expertly, if not loudly, rendered. These were archaic, lifeless caves, excessive living spaces with echoes. Well, hell yes, he was jealous, too. The owners had generations of family wealth that he had never had, and they shunned him socially for his lack of aristocratic heritage. It would make more sense, and irritate him less, if they turned him away because his breath reeked. Well, maybe their self-perceived splendor was what money did to the soul. He never believed he'd wanted that. Of course, it was a rationalization. He'd never had the opportunity to give it a try. He was Cajun, brought up by his mother, working his way through school next to the privileged, but never accepted as one of them. And he believed at times that it was the hard work to grow and thrive in spite of his background that had made him the best surgeon in the state, chief of surgery at the third largest hospital in the country. He'd done it, goddammit, without the context of the upper echelons of New Orleans society. Except, of course, for Clayton, his teacher, his mentor. Clayton guided his promotions and appointments, professionally, not socially. In the world of surgery, Mike owed Clayton a lot. At least he owed him guidance that might save his career. He pulled into the drive of Clayton's turn-of-the-twentieth-century stone house. It had been more than a year since he'd been here. There were 16 surgeons on service, and except for department and university functions, Mike had never socialized with his colleagues unless absolutely necessary, even after he was appointed chief four years ago. A lightning flash imaged the huge live oak in the front yard as he pulled his car under a small portico at the rear of the house to avoid the roof runoff. In the rain-slashed glare of a single spotlight, the wind whipped the banana leaves at the edge of the house. Clayton would probably be in the modern add-on solarium at the rear of the house. A floodlight over the back door was dark, and he felt for the bell button and rang. Catherine, Clayton's wife, answered. He peered into her wary eyes. He wondered how much she knew. She was two or three years younger than he, and more than twenty-five years younger than Clayton. He could not imagine Clayton discussing details of his daily work with her. And to Mike, she had always been pleasant but distant, always aloof with a sense of perpetual subconscious needs making her eager to be elsewhere. He had seen her a few times in the last couple of years, just to say hello in a grocery store or on the street with Clayton during Mardi Gras or the Jazz Festival. Clayton in, he asked. She stood back and he entered. She wore a gray workout suit with white side stripes. Her black hair was in a ponytail, and in the weak ambient light that filtered in from the dining room, her face was unusually pale. She wore no makeup. Mike had always found her attractive and even in workout clothes she carried an elegance that he admired. Why are you out in this? she asked without greeting. 
It's about work. That's what it's always about. She looked away. He's in the solarium. Catherine didn't move as he walked from the kitchen and through the old portion of the house. The foyer, the dining room with seating for twelve, a hall, all restored and filled with museum-quality antique Louisiana and European furniture. And then he stepped down through the double doors into the two-story solarium. A jungle of hanging and standing potted lush plants, vines, trees, and blooms. Clayton's bottomless, well-family money had allowed Catherine, obviously an exceptional horticulturist, to create a showcase of beautiful specimens. She was the pride of her garden group, Mike was sure. In the solarium, Clayton sat on the sofa with his feet up on an ottoman. He had on a fluffy cotton robe with only his undershorts below, but still wore his white shirt and reptile from the day. He gathered the front of his robe together. Michael! Uh, yes, sir, Mike said. He regretted this, sir, under the circumstances. It was habit. He couldn't shake the tradition of respect for the guys who had decades of experience, although technically, as chief of service, he was now Clayton's boss. Clayton picked up a remote and fumbled for the button to cut off the giant screen TV. Clayton paused. The fourth hurricane of the year was in the Gulf. Red circles next to dotted and solid lines covered the full-screen map. A commercial came on. Clayton clicked, and the picture faded. You're looking bushed, Mike. You're working too hard. Clayton waved a hand. Sit down. Mike moved past Clayton, who studied a hanging spider plant dangling on a long chain from a ceiling hook thirty feet above, and sat on the edge of a white wicker sofa. It's about today, Mike said. Paul's filed an incident report. Bury it, Mike, Clayton said. Catherine came in with a coffee pot and slices of lemon pound cake on a silver serving tray. Her hair was brushed now, shining with highlights. Her lips glinted with fresh lipstick. Leave us for a few minutes, baby, Clayton said. Catherine poured coffee for each of them and left, her silent steps almost ghostly in the damp shadows of the plants. She didn't react to her dismissal. Being excluded didn't seem to bother her. Clayton leaned forward and sipped from a cup. I've been around for a long time, Mike, Clayton said. I don't deserve this shit. Make that report disappear. Mike shook his head. It's not internal, Clayton. It's gone up the ladder. I can't stop it. If it goes to the OR committee, we'll be out of control, Clayton said. It's out of my control now. It comes from anesthesia, Mike said. Paul likes you. Talk to him. Make him see the light. He's concerned, Clayton. Paul was mostly concerned for patients. But Paul also didn't like the way Clayton's practice had shifted to the obese. Paul felt the surgery had high risk and questionable benefits. He's not a surgeon, Mike, Clayton said. He shouldn't be making judgments on us. He's a damn good anesthesiologist, and he cares for you. Honestly, he thinks as I do. If you step down, this would never get to the OR committee for action. Why would I step down? Cut back, then. The bypass stuff is growing, Mike. Obesity's pandemic. It's no time to cut back. Do the obese surgery without laparoscopy. It's the laps that are getting you in trouble. 
Clayton leaned back in his chair and closed his eyes. Mike waited. I'm not wrong here, Clayton said. I'm the best. One little mistake doesn't change that. No one's better than you, Mike said. But you've got to catch up on the new techniques. Is that as a friend or a chief of service? Both. I've done a lot for this department. And for surgery worldwide, Mike added. I don't deserve this shit. Paul tells me you've had other problems. Clayton thought for a moment. For Christ's sake, tell him it's temporary. Every surgeon has ups and downs. You know that. It won't fly, Mike said. I can't cancel cases, Mike. I'm booked for months. I might lose my block time. Mike stared at his untouched coffee. Telling the committee won't be enough. They'll be under strong moral imperative when it comes to patient safety. I bring in a lot of cases, Mike. I damn near support this department. It's got nothing to do with how many cases you do, Mike said. You made a mistake, Clayton. It could happen to anyone. No, Clayton. It did not happen to anyone. Face facts. It would not happen to very many. And it should never happen again. Clayton made a hiss with his mouth. I didn't need you today, he said. She could have died. You overreacted. You liked the glory. Mike stood in anger. Clayton called over his shoulder toward the kitchen. Honey, bring Mike a drink. He needs one. Then Clayton looked at Mike. Sit down. Mike lowered himself into the chair. I'm not stepping down, Clayton said. I'll do the training stuff, but I'm not stepping down. Clayton turned on the TV with a remote. Mike shrugged. I think that's a mistake. Make it right, then. Bury that report. You owe me, Clayton said. You want your drink? Nothing for me, Mike said. Mike knew Catherine was close by, and that she had listened to every word. But she stayed hidden. Mike let himself out. Catherine had listened to every word from the dining room. She slipped into the hall when Mike left. She walked back into the kitchen after the door closed and leaned forward with her hands on the counter, with her head down. Catherine, Clayton called. Clayton was becoming impossible, irritated, unreasonable. He had paranoid fears about the world coming after him and seemed close to striking out, especially at her and his friends who cared. And now this, a failure that would only make him worse. I'm going out, she said. Where? To talk to Mike. Keep out of it, Catherine. It's nothing to do with you. I'll be back in a few minutes, she said. In his car with the key in the ignition, Mike paused, resting his forehead on the steering wheel. He had failed. How could he have done it better? Catherine knocked on the window. Let me in. I'm wet. He hesitated, a sense of dread seizing him. Then he undid the locks. Catherine climbed in and closed the door. She crossed her arms, her hands gripping her shoulders. She was shivering. She was silent for more than a minute. You heard, Mike asked. Of course I heard, Michael. I was in the kitchen fixing drinks. Mike stared ahead. It's serious. He's got to realize it's serious. 
They're labeling him impaired. It's you, Catherine said. Not me, Catherine. You took over his case. The anesthesiologist thought she was going to die on the table. He was right, Catherine. You'll destroy Clayton. You especially. He's loved you like a son, Michael. From the day you came on service. The words hurt, Michael. I failed to convince him to do what's best for him. That's what I had to do. But I've let him down. You're the chief of service, Catherine said. He believes you're the one that will take away his privileges. Never. If it comes to that, it will be the OR committee. You're the chair of that committee. Without the power to make them go against what they will believe is wrong. What's wrong? To let him keep operating when he's dangerous. She turned her head to look at him for the first time. How can you say that? He's doing a lot of bariatric surgery, and he's using the laparoscope, Catherine. He has not adapted well. Help him. I don't do much of the obese stuff. Help him learn laparoscopy. I can't. He won't listen to me, Mike said. She looked away and sighed. He's so arrogant sometimes. It's pride, Catherine. Much of the time it's well-deserved. Well, don't let him fail. He deserves that from you after all these years. Mike shook his head. Encourage him to step down. Just for a few weeks, call it a vacation. Go on a retreat or something. He never listens to me, Michael. I'm a wife, not a colleague. And I haven't been confident enough around him to be blunt for years. If he won't step down, I promise we'll watch him carefully, Mike said. All the staff. We all want him to get through this. And the incident report, Catherine asked. There's nothing I can do. It's gone too far. She opened the door and turned as she got out, as if she were going to say something. But she shut the door, and he watched her walk slowly in the rain to the house, as if she dreaded entering again. Chapter 3 Two weeks later, Mike left the chilled, filtered air of an operating room, lowered his surgical mask as he walked down the humid hall, and went into the dressing room. He took a white lab coat from the hook in his locker and retrieved his wallet and keys from the upper shelf. He pulled on his lab coat over his green scrubs and walked to the elevator. Four minutes later, he was on the twelfth floor. He opened the door to the administrative conference room. Around the long, oval oak table and straight-back wooden chairs sat the members of the hospital OR committee. Nine surgeons, each representing a department, an OR coordinator, a secretary for minutes, an assistant dean, and the chair of anesthesia. Mike sat at the only empty chair, left vacant for him as the chairman of the committee and chief of surgery. He never thought to apologize for his lateness. He was often late, but, as all members knew, not because he was lazy or slow, his time was never his own. No one in the room, friend or foe, blamed him. He nodded to the secretary who started a tape recorder. Mike followed the agenda. Minutes approved, a vote on a new tech position, approval of a staged renovation of recovery room C, all 13 items above $5,000 approved for purchase, financial stats since December reviewed. 
He could feel the unusual tension in the room. If he could delay consideration of Paul's report on Clayton until the next meeting, he might fix Clayton's problems and lessen the severity of the committee action. He was about to close the meeting. Janet from Orthopedics stood up demanding attention for new business, but the first one to stand since the beginning of the meeting. He'd seen her memos about surgery for the obese. She was on a crusade against surgery for weight loss, and even though Clayton's technical mistake was not directly related to obesity, it happened during a procedure for weight control and was exactly the ammunition Janet needed to load her gun for lethal shots against the surgeons. You can sit down, Mike said. Janet ignored him. Each of you has read my risk management memo. Each of you knows about this OR error of Ortherson's. She paused. A life-threatening complication of gastric bypass. Ortherson should have his privileges resented. A report has been filed, Mike said. It needs to come through channels. We have responsibilities to make corrections now, Janet said. The patient has no permanent damage, a general surgeon said. You just don't like the operation. It's Otherson, Janet said with a controlled voice. Making advertising claims that can't be true, operating on anything that walks in the door, threatening the life of a patient. I don't understand, oral surgery said. You're a fucking dentist, Janet said. I'm dual trained. He shrugged his shoulders and looked around the table for support. No one responded. It's the bypass surgery. There, uh, Janet stared at Mike, on television and radio. It's common practice everywhere, said another general surgeon. Make your point, Janet, Mike said. There's a national backlash against the procedure, and now we're advertising. It makes no sense. It's become elective surgery, and a patient in our hospital damn near died. Stop Otherson now. Be reasonable, said Thoracic. Don't suggest I'm unreasonable because I'm the only one to bring to this committee what everyone knows. It's not good treatment, and it's expensive, and it almost killed someone. And if I hadn't brought it up, every one of you would have been happy to let it pass. Not me, said oral surgery. Please sit down, Janet, Mike began. I don't want to sit down. I was there. The complication was laparoscopic and had nothing to do with bypass. She wouldn't have been on the table if she hadn't signed a consent for bypass surgery. She expected weight loss. She almost lost her life. Her point was valid. But her remedies were off the mark and too severe. Mike was losing tolerance. If indications for bypass surgery are a problem, Janet, we'll deal with that separately. The report is about a single complication. I've talked to Otherson. He's agreed to more training with laparoscopy. And he'll stop operating? He's agreed to do open procedures until he's finished with the training on laparoscopic surgery. Janet looked around the table. That's not satisfactory. I move to revoke privileges to operate. Mike waited. Second, said ENT. Call the question, Thoracic said. Mike allowed for discussion. The room was silent. Janet had set a mood of hostility among the surgeons that discouraged supporting her on any issue. Mike pressed on. All in favor, Mike began. Two eyes, seven days. Motion is defeated, Mike said. Clayton was saved from any immediate surgical restrictions. 
His improvement would be on his own responsibility. Janet said, It still doesn't address the advertising. He's promising more than can be expected. She wouldn't let go. It was her nature to resist everything. We voted, Mike said. That's an issue for the next meeting. Morbid obesity is a nationwide problem in growing oral surgery, said. Deal with it now. What do you know about it? The general surgeon snapped. Fucking dentist, he mumbled, but all heard. Janet grinned and nodded. He knows what I know, and that's a hell of a lot. I'm on the ethics committee, ophthalmology said. There's concern. Clayton's operating on everyone. Don't get trivial, the general surgeon said. Morbid obesity is hardly trivial, ophthalmology countered. That's why we operate, you idiot, the general surgeon said. There are a lot of well-founded suspicions of preventable complications from bariatric surgery simmering in every clinic in this hospital, Janet said. It's reasonable to find facts, Mike said. We'll check the results. It will be a top agenda item as soon as possible. That's not enough, said oral surgery. I move at least he be censured for bariatrics. That would at least give the hospital some legal protection. It's insulting, Thoracic said. It's only a slap on the hand, Janet said. Second ophthalmology said, it'll tell him we're watching and that we expect him to retrain. Is that what you want to do, a formal censure, Mike asked the committee? On vote, only two of the general surgeons and thoracic disagreed. As the meeting adjourned, Mike whispered to the coordinator to have Otherson's obese stats on his desk tomorrow afternoon. He went to his office and called Clayton directly. You were censured. What the fuck does that mean? You'll be informed in writing the committee does not approve of your bariatric surgery, but you can operate. Without restrictions? They agreed with additional training and labs. Reevaluate your indications for obese surgery. You should have done more, Clayton said. You should have stepped down, Mike said and hung up. The next afternoon, Mike received the coordinator in his office. She laid a report on his desk. Sit down, he said. He studied the report. As part of the general surgery service, gastric bypass surgery was expanding rapidly. Obese was a financial success. The bulk of the report was devoted to outcomes. Mortality was higher than the published national average by almost 2%, significant at the .01 level. Clayton would argue the cases done were often the most difficult, and that a case mix weighted with seriously ill patients would always increase the mortality. But it was clear, too, that the body mass index threshold had been lowered so that the concept of morbid obesity had changed. In essence, skinnier people were now being offered the operation based on a lowered admission criterion. Where's the patient satisfaction, Mike asked the coordinator. There's not much, she said. I put what I could find in the appendix. Any significant findings? Hard to quantitate the quality of life stuff. But look at the summary page. The research protocols for studying psychological adjustment don't meet the standards of other institutions, and the results we have are below standards. It doesn't look good, Mike said mostly to himself. One-third had no effective weight loss. Those who did lose weight had a recurrence rate of more than 50%. 
100% are on lifetime vitamins and supplements. We're being accused of operating for cash and lowering indications, Mike said. What do you think? I wouldn't have the operation, she said, even if I dove into a swimming pool and emptied out all the water. Sit on these stats until the meeting. I'm not a crusader, she said. Whistleblowers are the first ones pushed out a top story window. But you don't like what you see? I'm ashamed. It's got nothing to do with the profession of healing. Within minutes, Mike was in Hammond McLaughlin's office, the chairman of the Department of Surgery, who was a head shorter than Mike even when they were standing. McLaughlin had a new red scaly patch on his head skin near the front. It needed treatment. McLaughlin took out a comb and gave his comb over a self-conscious left to right over his bald dome. Make it snappy, Mike. I've got an interview waiting. Mike laid the incident report on McLaughlin's desk. You need to give this some thought, Hammond. Clayton warned me, McLaughlin said. Said you might be coming by. We slipped, Mike said. We're doing borderline cases, some unnecessary. Speak straight, Mike. It's not we. It's Clayton you're after. He does more than 90% of the surgeries. McLaughlin pushed back from his desk. You're accusing Clayton? Not accusing we need tighter indications for all surgeons. McLaughlin turned serious. Jesus, Mike, he's a good man. We went to school together. I was in his wedding. Did you know that? I flew in from Philadelphia. Stayed at his mother's place like some fucking castle for a queen. Filthy rich he was. It's not just Clayton, Mike said, exasperated. There are others starting up. We need department-wide rules. I've reviewed his cases. His indications are loose. On his volume alone, the bad outcomes add up fast. Don't make it personal, Mike. I accept he had a mistake. We all do. It's not personal, Mike said. He's had surgical mistakes on bariatric cases. McLaughlin assumed everyone acted in his own interest. He was my mentor, Mike said. This is not easy for me. Then back off. Clayton is the number one surgeon in gross billings and collections. He supports this department. All the startup guys' salaries depend on him, and all those no-pay surgeries you like to do, those trauma cases from out of state, not possible without support from faculty like Clayton. It can't be money, Hammond. That's not what we're about. Don't be an idiot. It is all about money. The state cuts back. Medicare, Medicaid deny and won't pay reasonable percentages. Money keeps us afloat. That's life. Guys like Clayton save guys like you. It's like some shitty socialist mandate. Mike took a straight back chair and dragged it near the desk to sit in front of McLaughlin. Listen carefully, Mike said. A majority of the OR committee is very concerned over this issue. Orthopedics will turn this into a battle against surgery that will up their power in the OR. And they've got a silver bullet issue here. Believe me, this is not the time to dodge and weave. McLaughlin frowned. Clayton doesn't deserve this, he said, and picked up the report, tilting his head to focus his reading glasses. He scanned it just enough to shiver with a shard of fear over the potential damage possibilities. Mike stared. Hammond played favorites. His best skill was politics. He avoided conflicts and rarely made decisions unless pressed. 
but most disturbing, he resented the good surgeons, resented what they could do, and he would never be able to achieve in the OR. He had built his shaky power base and administration to find some value in his career. Can this report be trusted, McLaughlin said. Mike tensed. Nothing is faked. I'm chair of the OR committee. I don't make up bad outcomes. McLaughlin tilted back in his chair. We can't restrict our faculty, he said thoughtfully. We hire a guy like Clayton. He comes to do his thing. He's honest, trying to do the best he can. Volume is important. He ought to have the right to choose his cases. Mike leaned forward. Clayton's advertising. Orthopedics is right to be upset. The marketers fake pre-op shots using actors with pillows stuffed in their clothes, then cut to fake post-ops with the same guy strutting fatless on a beach in a Speedo. That's not helping the sick. That's looking for people who will agree to a risky operation. That's unfair, McLaughlin said. That's exactly how most of the OR committee sees it. They might let Clayton operate after a lap bleed-out, but they didn't like that it was obese elective surgery. Mike made an effort to keep his voice normal. He took the report from McLaughlin and stood. He held up the report. This was gathered by the committee coordinator. It will be committee information. If you don't take action, the committee will take action. It will be common knowledge. The world will come down on us. Calm down, McLaughlin paused. Look, I see your point. I need action, not understanding. I'll call a task force. That's the way to handle it. That way all sides can be heard. This is not a sporting event, Hammond. The department needs to publish strict indications. McLaughlin looked up at him. A task force is action. No one can fault that. We're trying to improve patient care, not escape fault. Patient care issues need a measured, non-emotional approach, McLaughlin said. Hammond wrote names on a pad. Use these. They're our friends. You choose the others. They all should come from you, Mike said. Hey, you're the one with a carrot up your ass. As Mike walked out, he gave a full list of names to McLaughlin's administrative assistant to make the arrangements for the first task force meeting. He had little respect for McLaughlin's delaying tactics. It could take months to work things out, for better or for worse. Chapter 4 Rosemary Dayside stood with Mike among their suitcases to look out the picture window of the hotel suite. The river was hidden by the levee some 200 yards away, but the top half of the tanker could be seen as it glided by. She savored the colors of the end-of-April flowers that lined the walks to the river, glowing in the late afternoon sun. The hotel was part of a renovated plantation resort project downriver from Baton Rouge that, because of its convention facilities, had been a favorite choice for the annual faculty retreat for some years. The sky had a few threatening late-day clouds to the south near the horizon. It would be a shame if storms spoiled the open-air social events. She'd brought delicate fair-weather outfits, colorful, revealing, demure. She had planned carefully to divert her attention from working-class origins. 
She busied herself hanging things in a walk-in closet and taking things from her suitcase to dress her drawers under a built-in TV set. Mike sat down in an overstuffed chair and stretched his legs. She prepared to shower, hiding herself from direct view. Even after two years of dating, she still felt shy undressing in front of Mike. It was part of her family belief. Single women, well, she was divorced. But still, she had certain modesty standards. What's tonight? She asked as she dried herself with a bath towel. Cocktails at six, dinner at seven, Mike said. She slipped into a walk-in closet and unzipped a garment bag and watched him unpack his tuxedo, old enough to have worn sheen on the elbows. He held it up to look for wrinkles. She moaned, I thought this was resort casual tonight. I brought only short dresses. She held up one black and one red dress from her bag and then replaced them. It won't make any difference, Mike said. It made a big difference. It was demeaning to be inappropriate. I'll need hose, she said softly to herself. She picked up her over-the-shoulder bag near Mike's chair. Mike said nothing. When she was in the hall, she closed the door quietly. Mike must be thinking about something important. In the gift shop, Rosie stood at the checkout counter. We're out, said the clerk, maybe in the middle of next week. I have a formal dinner tonight. Is there someplace else? There's a Walmart toward Lafayette. How long would that take? Thirty minutes round trip, maybe forty. A woman waited behind Rosie to purchase a bottle of wine. Are you with the faculty, the woman said. I'm Michael Boudreau's date. He's a surgeon. Michael works with my husband, Clayton Otherson. I'm Catherine Otherson. I'm Rosemary. Maybe I can help, Catherine said. I've got hose. Catherine bought the wine and had a gift wrapped. For the vice president of clinical affairs, she explained. The woman seemed pleasant enough, but there was a trace of curiosity in her look. Maybe she was making a judgment about her as Mike Boudreau's date. Well, no matter. Rosie couldn't go bare-legged in a short dress to a formal dance, and the authors and woman seemed willing enough to help. In the narrow hall, Rosie walked slightly behind Catherine to the Otherson's room. I brought two short dresses, Rosie explained. That would be fine anywhere else, but this is a pretentious bunch, Catherine said. Maybe I shouldn't go. Would it hurt Michael if I just bagged it? I really don't know, Catherine said. She removed a key card from the pocket of her white linen slacks. Rosie took the package with a bottle of wine to free Catherine's hands. Catherine paused before inserting the card. We're about the same size, Catherine said, looking at Rosie. I could lend you a dress. Rosie was surprised. Oh, no, oh, really, I, I, I couldn't. We drove and I threw dresses into the car. I had no idea what I wanted to wear. You might fit into one. What if you need it later, Rosie said. Don't be ridiculous. This will be fun, Catherine said. Catherine called to Clayton. No one answered. Good, she said. He's in the bar politicking. He comes with a list of people he's got to convince of one thing or another. In the bedroom, Catherine picked out a dress that fit Rosie perfectly, hand in glove. Clothes were obviously important to Catherine, a statement of wealth and class. It's beautiful, Rosie said. 
The perfect tailoring made her feel alluring and elegant. Are you sure it's okay? You do it justice, Catherine smiled. On me, it's not a favorite. In her pleasure, Rosie gave Catherine a grateful embrace. I'm so pleased it fits, Catherine said. Rosie went back to the room with the dress draped carefully over her arm. Hi, Mike said without looking up from the chair where he was reading. She dressed out of his view in the bedroom. I met Catherine Otherson in the gift shop, she called to Mike in the other room. Did you like her? From the start, she loaned me a long dress for the dance. As she adjusted the dress in front of the mirror, she flushed with pleasure. Mike did not respond. Minutes later, she touched his shoulder. She stood back and gave a twirl, her face radiant. You look wonderful, Mike said. You'll be proud of me? Mike stood and wrapped his arms around her. You're the best. The banquet room was airplane hangar size, carpeted in deep red and with a 35-foot dome ceiling. A raised bandstand with chairs for a 20-piece orchestra was in place at one end of the room next to a stage with a long table for dignitaries and an oak podium for speakers. Rosie felt the gaze of men as she walked into their reserved table her arm interlocked with Michael. To one side she saw Catherine in an off-the-shoulder, pale gray, full-length gown with white trim that she had seen in Catherine's closet. It seemed perfect for the evening. Catherine's shoulder-length black hair glinted with reflections from the room's seven-tiered crystal chandelier hanging above. Mike led Rosie to a table where two other surgeons and their wives were seated. Catherine sat with Clayton at a dignitary's table, and she had no chance to talk to her. But she smiled when Catherine saw her, and felt an almost conspiratorial warmth when Catherine gave her an approving nod. Chapter 5 Meeting started at 8 o'clock the next morning. Mike arrived late and sat on the right aisle about halfway back of the 500-seat auditorium that was about half full. He'd left his program in his room, but he didn't go back. This was a plenary session and had no information he wanted to listen to intently. The chancellor spoke. The audience was bored and inattentive. Heads nodded half asleep or lost in private thoughts. Some read journals or corrected manuscripts. A few had open laptop computers. Mike was not really interested in what the chancellor was saying, but he did not approve of rudeness from the faculty. He settled in to use the time effectively by mentally reconstructing a possibly new procedural approach to the traditional gallbladder removal. The air warmed from the body heat of the crowd and insufficient circulation, and he became aware that many minutes had passed. He had not tracked the time. He heard the Otherson name. He tuned back into the Chancellor, still speaking on the stage. Not Clayton Otherson. Catherine Otherson. Strange. She was not a doctor, and she was not faculty. He saw movement near stage right. She must have been sitting in the front row. She dressed in a gray dress suit with a pale yellow blouse. She was compact and trim. She climbed up the stage stairs gracefully with the controlled steps of an athlete and walked to the podium. Mike found her striking. She knew her worth. 
He'd not been around enough over the years when her role had always been as hostess or as Clayton's devoted companion to see it before. But here on this stage, presenting to this group of arrogant cynics about everything, her confidence was obvious and appealing. He glanced around but didn't see Clayton. The Chancellor welcomed Mrs. Otherson's announcement. Clayton Otherson's devoted wife, he said. Clayton Otherson, professor of surgery, who was no stranger to anyone in this room, not a word about Catherine's accomplishments. Catherine showed no reaction to the blatant sexist comments. Not that Mike had expected any. He was surprised again, though, after the introduction, that nothing in Catherine's dignified presence showed a trace of kowtowing to this mainly male audience. Catherine thanked the Chancellor for his introduction, her voice comfortable and polished. The psychic tone of the room shifted from near dead to crisply attentive. Every male's attention now focused on Catherine, not for her announcement, nothing cerebral, but because she was stunningly pleasant to look at. She began, I am pleased to announce that an unrestricted $2 million surgical endowed chair has been donated by Surgigen International. This company, a supplier of instruments and sutures to surgeons internationally, has chosen to recognize the University Hospital and the Department of Surgery by this generous gift to support education of new surgeons. Catherine used no notes. A recipient for a fellowship had been chosen, and the honoree would be announced next month. When Catherine finished, the Chancellor finally gave full credit to her as an active and talented fundraiser for the Alumni Association. Two other dignitaries were called to present major donations to the university, but Catherine was a star. Catherine had revved up their fantasies. Mike smiled. She was not your everyday stay-at-home housewife. Oddly, her success had pleased him. The same afternoon, Rosie climbed the tour bus steps in front of the hotel drive. Catherine sat at a window near the back. May I join you? Rosie asked. Of course, Catherine said. Rosie thanked Catherine again for the dress and told her she had dropped it off at the concierge to be cleaned and delivered to their suite. How beautiful you looked last night, Rosie said. Catherine smiled. You too. Have you been on this tour before? I put it together. The bus is commercial, but the guide is a volunteer from the Historical Society. I'm on the board. It wasn't mean, but it brought back the insecurities Rosie had around the rich and successful. She longed to learn the leadership skills that seemed so natural to Catherine. But Rosie couldn't be comfortable directing people. She didn't like to chant an offense. Catherine had confidence that moved people without offending them. She could see that. Was it just money or genes? Or had someone taught her? The bus drove by hundreds of acres of cane stalks, elephant high and sturdy. With a built-in sound system, the tour guide talked about the cane industry. My husband, and Mike too, treat all sorts of injuries to cane workers, Catherine whispered to Rosie. They get mangled in the machinery. Catherine did not speak as they passed neatly kept unpainted slant-roof houses in small clusters near crossroads. The levee was to the right of the road. Occasional refineries or chemical plants jutted silo-shaped towers and chimneys into the air. Various sized pipes, painted white, crisscrossed acres of flat land, bland tan in color and dusty dry. 
The river was rarely visible, but occasionally the tops of bulk carriers glided by. After that, Catherine did not look out the window. As they rode together, Rosie had come to like Catherine even more, and Rosie could feel Catherine's shift to a morose silence, ominous, like a pre-hurricane calm. Rosie worried now. Her nature was to take blame herself for anything she possibly could. Why had Catherine changed? Could it be something Rosie said? Something too personal? Inappropriate? Rosie couldn't think of anything. Besides, Catherine seemed immune to slights. She was so talented, so admired, and she had seemed immune to melancholy. Can I help? Rosie ventured after a few minutes. Catherine did not reply. When they exited the bus at the plantation, Catherine left the group to sit alone on a wrought iron bench. Rosie went into the house, but after seeing a ballroom painted all white, even the floors, and a dining room with a table set with French china and real silverware, she slipped away and went outside to enjoy the sun. Catherine was still on the bench. Rosie sat down beside her. I love that ballroom, Catherine said. I have always hoped my daughter would be married there. Is she engaged, Rosie said? She's 17. She has a boyfriend that she won't introduce to us, but I hope she's too busy partying to fall in love. I think New Orleans is like that. I mean, too busy to fall in love, Rosie said. You're not from here? North Carolina, but I've been here for 20 years. You think that falling in love is different in North Carolina? I think New Orleans erodes family values. That seems a little harsh, said Catherine. It's not easy to generalize. I guess you have only your own experiences. Rosie needed to explain. She paused for words, feeling inadequate around this talented woman. It's the city that care for God. There's truth to that in many ways. But people seem not to care about each other. Like they forget others are around. And it's better than Carolina? I grew up on a tobacco farm. I still carry concerns for my family and friends. I don't see those concerns very often in New Orleans. Catherine stared off in the distance. Did she agree? Catherine spoke after a pause. Where's your family now? Do you have children? Rosie pulled back. I'm divorced. She knew it wasn't reasonable, but suddenly she didn't want to discuss her personal problems. Catherine's inexplicable sadness had changed their space. Meanings between them seemed different. And Catherine was prying with questions that hurt was that a failure of love New Orleans style? Was he from New Orleans? Rosie didn't want to begin the memories. He was incapable of love. It's the curse of males, Catherine said. Rosie paused. Not just the men. It's lust in New Orleans. It's not love. Is that the way it is with Michael? Rosie flinched. She loved Michael, and it was more than lust. But she wasn't sure about his love for her. He did want her. But could he do without her? That was what concerned her. She didn't fill his heart the way she wanted. That was rude, Catherine said. I'm out of sorts. It wasn't rude, Rosie lied. This was a woman who could make a man want her. Catherine was in so many ways a Helen of Troy in New Orleans. 
Rosie wondered if Catherine could love any man the way she, Rosie, loved Michael. Sometimes I feel useless, Catherine said. This plantation, a hollow, pretentious remnant of some arrogant plantation owner, buried by his possessions, unremembered by anyone except for his selfish luxury in a sea of poverty that surrounded him, defined him, really. I think you're right about New Orleans not caring. His house has given pleasure to many generations, Rosie said, her opposition more reflexive than considered. Curiosity more than pleasure, Catherine said. But you wanted your daughter to be married here. To fit into the heritage, Clayton's family goes way back. I'm an bear, and we're new by comparison. I wanted her to be one of the cornerstones of New Orleans, to make her future easier. You're already so successful as a family. It's a facade, Catherine said. I'm unfulfilled. It hits me sometimes. No one gives a damn. Catherine forced a smile. But what about your family? I guess I don't have much family anymore, Rosie said. In truth, she rarely saw her family anymore. Her brother had moved west when her parents had died. Michael is your family, Catherine said. Michael is too busy most of the time. It's his profession. But if he loves you... He notices me when he's not at the hospital and when he's not exhausted, Rosie confessed. How does your husband manage? He's the same, Catherine said. I'm married 17 years, just out of Newcomb. I thought he could love me, but I really don't know what the perfect love is. I think I have to be happy with what I have. I don't think Michael really needs me, Rosie said. He wants me sometimes. Isn't that lust? Maybe I think love is selfless, Rosie said. Michael seems selfless sometimes, but he's too busy. He's good at his profession. He's probably selfish to everyone else but the ones close to him, Catherine said. Love is feeling, Rosie said. There must be doctors somewhere who could work and feel at the same time, but they're hard to find. Maybe Michael is one of those, Catherine said. It might just take time. Clayton is not? Catherine smiled. Definitely not. He thinks of me more like a figurine of beam porcelain than an eternal companion. It's maddening. Rosie thought for a moment. I don't think Michael yearns for me. I don't think Clayton ever yearned for me. He thinks wives need to have perfect manners and defecate behind closed doors. Rosie smiled, even though she heard pain in Catherine's voice. I love Michael in so many ways. There's an intensity to it and a fear that it won't last. She felt Catherine's hand on hers. It's not you or me, Catherine said. I don't think we're the same as men. That doesn't excuse them ignoring us. It's the apathy that hurts. I'm angry about it most of the time, Catherine said. Angry because I have to put up with it. I'm trapped. Time goes by. I don't think I'll ever really know love, Catherine said. Rosie smiled wistfully. She felt the strong presence of Catherine. Oh, I hope you do. We all deserve it. Rosie was as sad as Catherine now. Catherine stood up and waited for her. You're a good person, Rosie. Michael doesn't deserve you. I could never believe that, Rosie said. They joined the tour in the gardens for a brief reception where petty four and dark coffee were served. 
That same afternoon, in a hotel conference room, Mike, as chairman of the operating room committee, led the breakout planning sessions for the OR. The hospital CEO announced the new wing on the 19th floor had been opened up for private patients to get VIP care. Clayton announced a marketing program for a new wing for the obese. At 5 o'clock, Mike made reservations for two in the hotel restaurant. He called Rosie and told her to be ready at 7. He wanted to please her. He went to the dean's reception on the lawn under one of the live oaks to make the expected contacts, mostly junior faculty needing referrals or committee appointments, and then left to meet Rosemary at the reflecting pond in front of the main house where the most elegant restaurant of the five in the hotel complex served dinner nightly. Rosie had dressed in white pants and a lavender blouse, accented her look with a red belt and shoes, and tucked a white and yellow polka-dotted scarf around her neck. She asked what Mike thought. She was striking. She had sharp features, interestingly arranged. She was an artist. She did big canvases with larger-than-life figures and oversized sculptures cast in bronze. She was fit from climbing ladders and heavy lifting. No one can do it like you, Mike said. Too artsy? Hey, this crowd needs artsy, needs you, he said. The table for two was outside and secluded near the railing of the second-floor gallery that surrounded the house. They looked out onto the expanse of the grounds, now vibrant with the dark greens of the foliage, and smoldering, sun-setting streaks of light piercing through the live oaks. They ordered drinks and he asked about her day, about the antiques lecture tour to the three plantation houses. Catherine Otherson was there. He couldn't imagine elegant Catherine getting on and off a tour bus with faculty wives and sweethearts. She talked to me a lot. We sat next to each other. The waiter brought drinks. She doesn't seem happy with marriage, Rosie continued. I think her marriage sucks. She said that? Not directly, but she had a sadness about her. It came over her like a dark cloud, and then she talked. About her husband, her daughter. She asked about you and me. Mike ordered dinner for them both and another round of wine. Catherine wanted to know how I felt about you, she said, looking directly at him. He took a sip of wine. She looked down. As the silence extended, he waved to the waiter and asked him to open a bottle of white wine. What did she say, he asked. She gave a strained laugh he couldn't interpret. I asked her how she felt about Clayton. He touched the top of her hand and smiled. Clever, he said. She smiled. Did you have a good time, he asked. I think we both came back feeling ignored by surgeons. He looked down for a few seconds, then he looked at her. That's strange. You don't feel right about us? It's not that. It's complicated. I wish you and me had more time together. He sipped his wine. We can do it, he said. If that's what you want, I just have to schedule better. The bisque came in bowls hidden under silver-plated dome covers. I felt small around Catherine, Rosie said. She talked down to you? Oh, no, nothing like that. She's so successful in a different class. She could never create what you've created, he said. She makes a difference, Michael. She is somebody. You're too hard on yourself. Rosie took a long sip of wine. Maybe. 
she said. The final meetings on Sunday lasted all day, but Michael decided to leave early. Rosie waited in the room until morning meetings were finished. Michael returned at noon, and in a few minutes they were back in the sedan headed for New Orleans, back down the river road, across the bridge to the east bank, taking the I-10 by the airport into the city. He talked about the meeting in the weekend, but she didn't say much, unable to feel free enough with her anxieties to converse. When they reached the inner city, she turned down the music on the radio. I'm concerned about us, Michael. I've been thinking. She looked out the side window. I, I don't feel right. He thought for a few seconds. Don't be ridiculous, he said. We're right for each other. He exited the expressway overpass near the Superdome. You're special, he said. You make me feel special sometimes. I've cherished that. He glanced at her briefly. Well, you are. She was still looking out the window. But I can't believe it anymore. Was it talking to Catherine? Is that what this is about? I was thinking about it before then. But it was what she said about us. No, she said surgeons were different. Then what? I don't know. Then women? Yes, that's part of it. But they don't have the time to. They live their work. She was serious about this. I can change, Rosie. Just tell me what to do. He turned on to Claiborne, heading for her apartment. She stared straight ahead. Don't be complicated, he said, smiling to her. You mean a lot to me. She felt trapped by her fear of a future together. She couldn't respond. I love you, he said. I mean it. She stayed silent. It was actually one of those rare times he had ever said, I love you, without sex involved. But it was an echo, slightly hollow. Not insincere. He was too honest to lie. He just didn't know what love was. She knew she would never be the one to allow him to discover and she knew if they went on, he might very well find the one to love, leave her, and she would never recover. You've always known I love you, he said. What's changed? She opened the door. Let's be close again, he said. Her face had tensed into an expressionless mask. Please open the trunk, she said. He took her bags out of the trunk. She tried to take them out of his hands. I can manage, she said. I can carry your bags, Rosie. But she took them away from him. He followed her up the porch steps to the door. Thanks for everything, she said. I had a great time. Hey, let's talk in my place for a while. We can work this out. I don't think so. She unlocked the front door. I need time to think. She took her bags and went in. He started to follow. I want to be alone, she said, not able to face him. Please don't do this. She closed the door. She stood motionless inside the door for many seconds. He knocked and waited. She loved Michael. She loved him too much to let it go on. All he had to do was convince her he cared. But he couldn't do that. He didn't care enough. He called her the next day and she answered pleasantly but had no time to talk. He called back later, but she didn't pick up. He left messages. She would not respond. 
She did see him a few more times, unplanned times with stiff greetings between them, and she spoke in impersonal tones and asked disinterested questions. Eventually, he seemed to know she would not risk her future with him, and his calling became less frequent. Chapter 6 Helen Rappaport was 16. She'd missed her birthday party her mother had planned last week, or uh, was it two weeks ago? She hadn't been home. She'd been sleeping in the park near the river. In the hours after midnight, the lights dimmed, and a deep space silence enveloped the sounds of street traffic and a rare trolley car. Tourists on Decatur Street were still finding another party, their blunt shouts and sharp curses piercing the humid air like a knife through lard. But they were too far away to attract her attention. Her moment of hope faded. She leaned against a concrete barrier near the streetcar tracks, her feet out. She eased her pains in her chest and legs with soft moans. Blood oozed from her nose. A darkening bruise on the side of her face was beginning to ache and throb. She could feel it swelling. A shadow moved near the street lamp across the streetcar tracks near the levee. She thought the black angel had come for her, a halo of dreadlocks. She was not afraid. She could welcome death, even though she knew she would be in hell. But she was in hell here on earth, so what the hay? The angel left, on foot. She had wanted him to fly, to hover over the trees on the pewter swath of the near full moon. She lost the sense of time passing. A woman cop locked the doors in the black-and-white cruiser, and Helen curled up on the back seat. Her stomach was big and hurting. Light from the dashboard filtered into the back through the tight screen, leaving patches of diamond-shaped lights on the back of the seat. On a gurney, the intense light of the emergency room light made her eyes squeeze shut. She tried to remember the name of a doctor who was her father's friend. God, if she could only remember. She'd been damn near killed by the trainees at this butchery more than once. God damn it, what was his name? Mike was on in-house trauma backup call. As was protocol, house staff saw Helen first. And although she was only half conscious, Mike Boudreaux's name floated out from Helen's jumble of misconnected words. Her father knew Dr. Boudreaux. She'd said it twice. That this wretched kid knew a prominent surgeon on staff impressed the fellow rich, and he called the on-call room directly. She's from the restaurant family. I don't feel good about this one, Dr. Boudreaux, Rich said. She's a hooker got beat up by a pimp or a john. In minutes, Mike joined Rich in the OR scrub room. They prepped side by side over a sink and monitored the OR preparation through a rectangular window for direct view into the OR. You know her well, Rich asked. Seen her a few times. I crewed with her father on Bacchus, Mike said. Staff positioned the girl on the table as they scrubbed. Her belly was distended from internal bleeding. Her nose was crushed, her left eye swollen, the side of her face purple, and her left arm already splinted until a fracture could be reduced when she was out of danger. Anesthesia was having trouble keeping her blood pressure up. Mike assisted as Rich cut a clean first incision. They were in the abdomen in a minute. Blood gushed. 
With suction and sponges, they cleared the field to see the anatomy. 110 over 65, the anesthetist said from behind her barrier drape. In two minutes, Rich had isolated the ruptured spleen, controlling the bleeding, tamponading with sponges and tying off ruptured vessels. I'm giving her another unit, the anesthetist said. They worked with controlled immediacy. Forty-five minutes later, they placed the last staple enclosure. Mike went with Rich to the family waiting room. Helen's father, Marcel Rapoport, leaned against a small waiting room wall, his arms outstretched, his palms flat on the beige-painted surface. His face was flushed. He was alone. Jesus, Boudreaux, it took you long enough, Rapoport said. She's going to be okay, Mike said, uncomfortable with Marcel's belligerence. Rapoport shrugged. She was assaulted, Mike added. She's a whore, Boudreaux, a drug addict, a screwed-up kid. Marcel Rapoport kept his eyes diverted. I haven't seen her for months. She lives with her mother when she's not in the streets. The bitch has a restraining order on me. She'll be out of recovery in a couple of hours, Mike said. Helen would survive these wounds, although Mike was not sure she could survive in life much longer. I'm not going to wait around, Rapoport said. Rapoport threw up his hands in the air. Why show up, Mike asked. He never remembered Marcel being so exasperating. Some nut in the admissions office told me she might die. I got in the car like some diseased homing pigeon. I expected a barrier. Then I got to thinking. Sometimes I think it would be a relief. But she'll live, and we don't get along, and I don't want to relive what we've gone through every time we've talked over the last few years. She'll need you, Mike said. She's had too many chances, Boudreaux. I'm telling you, I'm not doing anything more. Could you give me a call in case there are complications, Rich said. Pester her mother. Rapoport yanked the door open. She'll need rehab, Mike said. She needs a brain transplant, Rapoport said without looking back. A really great guy, Rich said. Word gets out, everyone will want him for a father. They walked to the hall toward the doctor's dressing room. It's sad, Rich said, cases like this. We save her life and her parents don't care. She doesn't even care. Call Angie Picard, Mike said. She's the best with these cases. Maybe she can help. Helen improved. Her temperature was normal, vital signs stable, and she required less pain medication. Five days after Helen's surgery, Mike directed Angie to a seat in his office. As a social worker, she was effective and well-liked. He came around from behind his desk to an armchair near her. She smiled sincerely with a sense of quick intelligence. It's Helen Rapoport's father, she said. He won't talk to me. I've called, written hand-delivered letters. I want good rehab for Helen. He's a basket case, Mike said. And a negligent father, Angie said. He wasn't always like this, Angie. I knew him when he carried pictures of his family in his wallet and passed them around without being asked. He loved Helen. Angie fingered the edge of Helen's folder. She failed in every program in the city. I want to get her to upscale rehab in Mobile. 
The mother has Boku cash from the divorce. I'm not so sure, Angie said. And she hangs up at the sound of Helen's name. You know Rappaport. Maybe you could convince him. He wouldn't turn you down, would he? He's moody, Mike said. Unpredictable. Mike looked at the concern on Angie's face. How could anyone do her job? She was an accomplished, talented woman with two degrees more than anyone else in her field. She was from a generations-old New Orleans family with plenty of money. She could live a life of luxury, but she was passionate about her work. He could not turn her down. I'll try, he said, tonight. Mike pulled into the parking lot of Rappaport's Cajun restaurant that served seafood and steaks until 10 p.m., the lights went off on the rectangular sign that jutted two stories above the street. He waited until Marcel exited the side door of the building and then walked to him. Could we talk about Helen, Marcel? Jesus, Boudreaux, I'm wiped out. I don't want to talk. Mike matched Marcel's tired steps. What's in it for you, Boudreaux? Angie Picard asked me, the social worker. She takes good care of my patients. They walked to Marcel's burgundy Mercedes sedan. Marcel punched his remote, and the locks opened. Five minutes. Get in. Mike settled into a comfortable leather seat. Marcel took a pint of Russian vodka out of the glove compartment. An automatic pistol gleamed in the dim light. Mike stared. Got a permit, Marcel said. Been robbed four times in three months. In your car? Marcel nodded. Twice. Shot a carjacker in February on Lakeshore. I wish I'd killed the son of a bitch. Now he's suing me. Marcel took a healthy swig from the bottle and passed it. Mike declined. I came about Helen, Mike said. I don't ever see Helen since the divorce, Marcel said. I can't help. I told you. Her mother has custody. The restraining order is still in effect, as far as I know. Helen needs rehab, Mike said. Angie Picard needs you to cover the admission. I got no insurance. You don't have a clue what went down, Boudreaux. All expensive shit. There is no way. You can't deny Helen a chance to pull her life together. Angie has faith in her. God damn it, Boudreaux. She's hopeless. I've put her in rehab three times already. Marcel took another swig. He still had half a pint left. His voice was softer, his diction already slurred. I'm fucking tired of trying to make things right for her. Marcel slipped into silence. Mike stared ahead into the dark shadows of the live oak on the lawn in front of the car. This was a waste of time. I gotta tell you, Boudreaux, Marcel began. She wasn't always a bad kid. But about 10 or 11, she got weird, blowing off schoolwork, kept to herself in her room, slipped out at night, that sort of shit. I thought it was teenager time, but she was being fucked over by some adult. I go to the guy who laughs at me, and I tell him I'm going straight to the cops, sink his ass forever. Within an hour, the guy's father... One rich motherfucker comes to me and my wife. He says charges would never stick, that he had that kind of power. 
Did we really want to smear Helen over New Orleans as a victim of sex? Then he says she enjoyed it, and it was her hormones that attracted a man anyway. Marcel paused. A breeze had picked up, and in the faint light the leaves on the oak shimmered. He let me know if I went farther. Spread the word. He'd blow up the business with my family in it. Believe me, he wasn't just sucking wind. Mike said nothing. Marcel found his bottle again and took a slow sip. It got worse. The son of a bitch puts an envelope with $500,000 on my desk right here in this restaurant. And we took it. Jesus Christ, we took the money. Mike looked out the side window at the two empty parking spaces, then to Marcel. Marcel had a spot of wetness in the stubble of his beard. Well, it broke up our shitty marriage. She said I sold her daughter. Helen turned into the toughest broad like some fucking dyke. She does sex for drug money. She hates men. She'll never marry. And she won't talk to me. Marcel wiped away a few tears. Is that what you wanted to hear, Marcel asked? Of course not, Mike said. I think about killing myself. If I had any guts, it's what I'd do. I live with a coward in me. Or I'd just take that thing, Marcel nodded toward the glove compartment, and do it, I swear. The car windows were up. Mike sweated. Marcel sighed. Go home, Boudreaux, he finally said. I'll try to work it out. Once outside the car, Mike leaned over before closing the door. You okay to drive, Mike asked. It would be a blessing, Marcel said. Mike closed the door gently. Marcel turned over the engine and backed away with the skill of a race driver. He had had years of experience driving while zonked. A slow death from chronic alcohol would kill him before a fatal car crash. Marcel stopped on his way out of the lot and lowered his window. I care about Helen, Marcel said to Mike. You don't think so, but I do. The window slid up smoothly. Chapter 7 Helen was discharged from the hospital. Her belly had sharp pains when she moved. Her left eye was still swollen shut. But it was her arm that gave her a deep, boring pain that kept her from sleeping and on the edge of exhaustion so she could barely think. Angie Picard drove her to a halfway house. In her narrow, sparsely furnished room, Helen lay on a single bed on her side with her arm propped up on two pillows and took painkillers whenever they allowed. She had no appetite. Three days later, Angie Picard came and drove her to Mobile. Helen's nausea got worse with car motion, and she counted the minutes until they arrived in the late afternoon. The idea that she might never return to New Orleans came to her through her pain as Angie said goodbye and wished her good luck. With serious gravity, Angie said that her father had provided the money. This was the best clinic on the Gulf, and it was Helen's chance to turn her life around. In the silence after Angie left, Helen wondered how she would feel if she never went back to New Orleans. Was that why she was here? She had no home, really. No family anymore. Not going home didn't make her sad, 
but it didn't make her happy either. It was the way she'd been thinking as long as she could remember, thinking about how to dull her fears about everything. But she could find nothing she could reach out and grasp or even describe that would help. The booze and mostly crack dulled the fear for her for a few hours so she could forget. Her craving was not drinking or smoking, but just not having to think about being afraid about something she couldn't name and that could, in the next moment of her life, make her feel so bad. The pains never left her over the next few months as she recovered, but she did find a friend from Atlanta, Janina, who liked the music she liked. Together they dreamed a little. They told stories, laughing at themselves. Helen remembered stories that surprised her, stories that were unbelievably similar to Janita's when she told them. Helen found it easier to describe stories after a while, because now they seemed remote and not really hers. Over many weeks, Helen felt a sliver of satisfaction. It was hope, really that she wouldn't fall into a slide that would carry her down, angry and fighting, to dump her out of the back seat of a police car on the way to have doctors probe and cut her so she could lie in pain, begging a nurse's aide for some hit to ease her. She saw a possible fear-free future, craving nothing but a good night's sleep and a tasty fresh fruit for breakfast. She found looking forward to moments of dreadless calm strangely intoxicating. She wanted never to lose it. Her image in the mirror changed from day to day. In those thoughtless days of passing out for a few hours of rest, on gravel or grass at the softest surface she could find, she never saw herself in a mirror. And she would never have looked, even in a public restroom or the reflection of a store window. She had no wish to see herself in those days. As she healed, she first looked to see how her face looked. The bruises had faded, the scabs dropped off. And then slowly, when she got up from her cot, she went to the bathroom and looked at the face staring back at her, searching for changes. And she combed her hair, wore a little makeup, wore only a freshly washed T-shirt and jeans, and later a print dress. She felt joy when Janina said one day, Hey girl, you something when you get it together, like you swing it, baby. You too, Helen had replied. Helen had begun to enjoy emotions one at a time, one after the other. But when her mother showed up unannounced, Helen felt the return of a spaghetti tangle of interest, suspicion, pride, distrust, guilt, uncertainty, doubt, inaction, and fear, like a shark fin in muddy water. They sat speechless for her half-hour visit, but then her mother announced she would pick her up in two weeks to take her home. Mother had a new boyfriend, a drummer, who lived in the house with her now, and he had agreed to let Helen live with them until she could get out on her own. Do I really want to go back to New Orleans, Helen thought. She wasn't sure. As the reality settled in, she had more fear than joy. You put on weight, her mother said before they had crossed the Alabama line on the way home. Helen ignored her, the way she had for years before her mother disowned her. You were always so pretty, her mother said. It was dark when they drove through Biloxi, Gulfport, past Christiane. 
Casino billboard lights gyrated animated figures of girls and fish and horses to grab their attention. Don't be so sullen, her mother said after they crossed the Louisiana state line. Helen turned her head away with her eyes tightly shut. Chapter 8 When Mike arrived for the task force meeting, only the assistant dean who would chair the meeting was waiting. The dean handed him a mission statement to evaluate the present status of bariatric surgery for the obese. That's not what we're about, Mike said. To evaluate, we need to set indications. I don't want this job, the dean said, and I don't want your advice. Thirty minutes later, Hammond McLaughlin, as chairman of the Department of Surgery, welcomed and introduced each member, the non-surgeons first, a psychiatrist, internist, pediatrician, assistant to hospital CEO, dean for clinical affairs, research coordinator, and the department administrator, then ending with the surgeons. Of the four general surgeons, all had done obese as a procedure, but only Clayton had developed obese as a major part of elective general surgery. McLaughlin called Clayton to the podium to update the non-surgeons on what the service was doing. Clayton spoke without notes. He feigned modesty. The morbidly obese who could not control their weight with diet, drugs, and therapy, he said, could be surgically treated with one of two procedures at the center. He explained details of lap band surgery that restricted the volume of the stomach and gastric bypass surgery, the RUNY procedure that connected parts of the digestive tract to bypass most of the stomach and prevent absorption. Procedures could be done through a small tube, the laparoscope, or through an open and much wider incision in the abdominal wall. Laparoscopic surgery was more difficult and had a higher complication rate than open incision surgery especially during the difficult early learning period for surgeons. Clayton proudly announced that 90% of the service's obese cases were laparoscopic now, and both mortality and morbidity were acceptable. Then before leaving to catch a flight for Washington, Chairman McLaughlin called on Mike to present the coordinator's data. Mike stated facts and aimed no criticism at individual surgeons. He compared the obese surface to other institutions. He concluded, It is true we need a comprehensive program to treat these patients, but we must determine the right patient for the right procedure and operate only when needed so we can reasonably predict results. A mixed silence of sympathy, hostility, and apathy hung in the room. Mike waited for questions. Slowly, Clayton rose from the back row. Clayton's voice carried over the group with an accent of rolled vowels and soft consonants that seemed more intense than usual. I know what it is to be fat. Patient after patient tells me of the taunts, how they fought through the derision. And I tell you, Boudreaux, there is nothing we can do for patients that is more important than this surgery. You don't do the surgery enough to comment. Besides, you're not fat. And what you present is unreasonable and restrictive to patients who need the surgery. Clayton sat down. The assistant dean led the discussion. We can't restrict licensed surgeons with established privileges from doing their work. 
Maybe a voluntary monitoring system, someone said. Legal ramifications from restrictions could be costly and time-consuming, someone else said. We need standards, sanctions, a moratorium until we've got it sorted out. Any action must be approved by the faculty senate, the dean said. This is not an academic issue. This is clinical. We need hospital bylaws. But after two hours of discussion, no indications were clarified or changes in existing indications proposed. The task force refused to make a commitment to non-surgical treatment, fearing public exposure of the information would dampen referrals. Committees were assigned to investigate, study, and present alternative guidelines. It was obstructive delay. Many in the room thought if they ignored action long enough, the problem would dissolve. The meeting was adjourned. It would take weeks, maybe months, to get definitive action, even if a decision for action finally was made. Clayton continued to operate. Mike and the other faculty monitored him from a distance. In two months, Clayton's volume of obese cases almost doubled, but he had no technical errors that threatened a patient. Chapter 9 the late summer, breezeless air descended on New Orleans like a hot, transparent fog as the fourth hurricane of the season, Dion, intensified in the Gulf to a Category 3. For Mike, tracking hurricanes on radio or TV was time-consuming and mostly useless. He relied on word of mouth and reacted only with an imminent threat. But at 5 a.m. on the day of predicted landfall, the caretaker for his house in the quarter began boarding up windows and filling bathtubs and sinks with water. Mike packed a suitcase with clothing changes and bathroom essentials for three days at the hospital. By mid-afternoon, the hospital staff began discharging elective and non-critical patients, preparing for power outages when remaining critical patients would depend on emergency generators and called in off-duty personnel. At four o'clock, Mike went to check on his mother. She was 75 now, and he always stopped by to help her board up before storms. Mike loved his mother. She lived above her shop near the park on Magazine Street where she sold remedies and herbs, aromas and essences, mojos and spell kits, and gave advice to customers, most of whom were friends. She had never married. Mike's father had left her before he was born, and her Cajun Catholic family had disowned her for a few decades. Mike loved her for all her eccentricities. He was proud of her, how she had supported herself as a medium and fortune teller in and around Jackson Square since the 60s. She was a regular stop for tourists and a friend and a confessor to any native who needed her, usually without charge. But in recent times, the people of Jackson Square had switched from good wines to bad drugs, kind words to violent curses, and Mother had decided to move uptown to sell her merchandise. Mother had a hammer and nails on the kitchen table. She scolded Mike. He had not been by often enough. He retrieved planks from under the house to board up the windows. He wired the upstairs shutters closed and taped vulnerable panes of glass. Mother Boudreaux drew water from the tap and filled bottles and pans as he worked. You see Rosemary, Michael? She say you not be by for long time. I've been operating day and night the past month. 
You found someone else? No one, Mom. She switched bottles under the water flow. She glared at him as silence grew. You marry that Rosie, Michael. Last time she hears, she find a new beau, you know. She said that to your mother. She's a divorced Catholic mother. I can't imagine her getting married again to someone else. But the news disturbed him. She don't love no one else. She love you. Mother capped water bottles. She'd mellowed her concept on divorce. She was a romantic. He checked his mother's food supply and medicine, but she had already stocked well on her own. His mother turned silent. I'll call from the hospital to check on you, he said. You think about that woman more, Nespa? As soon as I can after the storm, Mom. It is not good, this letting the good horse out of the barn to roam the pastures. Mother wanted grandchildren, and she blamed Mike for not providing for her. All her friends had grandchildren. Mike kissed his mother on the cheek as he left. He would worry about her during the storm. He did not insist she stay with friends or that she hire someone to help her prepare. He'd tried that before, and he'd insulted her. Her independence kept her going, and she didn't like suggestions that she wasn't competent. Mike drove back toward the hospital using Chapatula Street. The wind blew harder, bending saplings, whipping leaves and papers into the air. He went north on Poydras toward Tulane. As he neared the multi-deck garage for patients and employees, he saw Angie Picard standing in the rain next to her car with no rain gear on. She was trying to push a 3,000-pound vehicle to the side of the street. He stopped and got out, shielding his eyes from the rain. You steer, I'll push, he said. Once her car was at curbside, Angie got into Mike's car. He drove toward the security office to let her off before he returned to park. Do you remember Helen Rappaport, Angie asked. I've thought about her often, he said. She's gained confidence, back living with her mother, even looking for a job. Her recovery was beyond expectations. I hope Marcel's happy. She says she sees him twice a week. Mike knew Angie's care had been responsible for Helen's successful re-entry into a functional world. He could imagine how thankful Marcel must be, but knew Marcel was not the type to allow gratitude to slip out easily through his hard-baked exterior. The hurricane made landfall west of New Orleans. The damage was mild and the cleanup less than onerous. The hospital received few casualties, and the people of New Orleans prayed in thanks that the big one they dreaded had not chosen them this time. When he was off call on Sunday two weeks later, Mike went to Mass at St. Louis Cathedral. He arrived late and found space in the center near the rear. He searched the congregation. Rosie usually worshipped in front to the right. The sermon was long and heavy on the spiritual value of fasting. He thought he'd missed her until she rose to leave. She was alone. He half expected to see a male companion. He caught up to her and walked alongside. Hey, it's me, Mike, he said. Not dangerous, feeling friendly, and willing to buy a beautiful woman a cup of coffee. You're hopeless, she said, but she did not smile. But likable? Really, Michael. You've disappeared. Mother said you'd been by. You're the one that disappeared. A new boyfriend? 
Rosie looked at him. A coffee, that's all. That's what Mother said. You had a new beau. I have a new interest, I do. We can sit on a bench in the alley, Mike said. Notes from a calliope on the paddlewheel river steamer danced through the streets. Tourists clumped together on street corners and at store windows. There was a smell of coffee and takeout food and pot lingering from late night. He bought coffee, and they sat together on a backless stone bench in front of a blocked stone wall near Decatur Street. She kept two feet of space between them. Do you love this guy? Mike asked. He loves to cook. He's a sous chef. I've known him for years. She looked off across the street. A jazz band was setting up under a tent for a Sunday brunch crowd at a restaurant with outdoor covered seating. Mike missed her. He wanted her back like they'd been. You getting married, he asked. He doesn't know it yet, but yes. You wouldn't change your mind? They sat in silence for minutes. I'm happy, Michael. She stood. He stayed seated. I'm really happy, she said. Without me? You said you'd never get married again. I changed. He didn't want her happy without him. He missed her. Damn it, he was jealous. Is there something I can do to work it out, Mike said. Would she move in with him? It's not you, Michael. It's me. I just need more than you can give. She stared at him dry-eyed. It strings me out sometimes. He was irritated now. It was unreasonable. They had always spent their free time together. But he would not plead. If she had found someone better, okay. But he wasn't going to grovel. He'd given her his best. If it wasn't good enough, so be it. She drained her cup. It was great, but it's time to move on, she said. She hesitated. Would she say more? Say she was sorry? That she couldn't do without him? And was going against what she really wanted? She walked away. What did that silence mean? Had he really meant so little to her? She was important to him. He needed to talk more. Take care, he finally said in a not-too-loud voice. Had she heard? Did she look back? No, probably not. He didn't move for many minutes. He was oppressed by a sense of finality. He wondered about what he had lost. He wondered, too, if he'd ever have a chance to revive it. She couldn't really be serious about a sous chef, could she? Chapter 10 Mike was surprised when Helen Rappaport entered his office with her mother Pamela. Mike hadn't seen Pamela for years. She changed a lot. She had the foundations of an attractive woman, but her flesh sagged now, and the skin lines on her face had taken on permanent slants of smoldering anger and disappointment. Helen was her only child. Helen smiled widely. Dental work had filled in spaces from lost teeth. Her clean hair was trimmed and framed a healed, healthy face. He looked at her record, drug-free for months, but she had gained weight. 
I've placed her on diets, Pamela explained to Mike after brief greetings, but she has no willpower. Clayton Otherson had finished Helen's examination two days ago, and lab and imaging results had been transferred to the open medical record folder on the desk. Dr. Otherson recommends surgery, Pamela said, her teeth clenched. But Marcel wants you. That's why we came. Helen fidgeted. I'd like to talk to Helen for a few minutes, Mike said. I have the right to be here, Pamela said. And you will be. Please, just for a few minutes. Pamela left the room, closing the door firmly. Helen looked to nothing on the floor. What do you want, Helen? Mike asked. Helen clasped her hands in her lap. She looked away from Mike. I know what you've been through, Mike said. You've done well. I gained weight. But you're not overweight. Tell that to my mother. Helen looked up, but her eyes avoided him. I've already had liposuction. Many doctors would think you're too young for surgery, Mike said. Helen slumped as if she'd finished with responses. I can't recommend surgery, Mike said. I don't think you're a candidate, but I want to know how you feel. Helen seemed to sigh, but there was no sound or movement. I don't want to argue about it anymore, she said. Her eyes were vacant. She searched for a comfortable spot to look after looking at him for an instant. I'm going to recommend a dietitian who works with young people, Mike said. Would that be okay? Helen shrugged. I need your approval. Oh, whatever. He went to the door and asked Pamela to return. He recommended diet and exercise and counseling to continue to develop good lifestyle changes. She won't diet, Pamela said. I told you. She has no discipline. Her speech turned sharp. Dr. Otherson says the surgery can do good. He's the expert. We came here only because Marcel knew you. Dr. Otherson was promoted as the expert, but he wasn't the best surgeon available. Still, to be ethical, you never talk down the skill of a practicing surgeon. Surgery was almost always a judgment based on partial information, not fact, and unjust criticism was unfairly hurtful. So you had to keep quiet. And you expected others to do the same for you. I don't do many bariatric cases, Mike said. I recommend another try at weight control. She's impossible, Pamela said. She's negative, negative about everything. Mike watched Helen carefully for a reaction, but she'd run out of will to make decisions about anything. I can arrange an appointment with a specialist, Mike said. A surgeon, Pamela asked? No. I don't want any more consultations with do-nothings, Pamela said. Mike looked to Helen. Would you like that? Helen shrugged. Pamela stood and grabbed Helen's arm and pulled her into a standing position. This has not been helpful, she said over her shoulder to Mike as they left the room. Mike noted his recommendations in the chart and dictated a detailed letter to Clayton about his recommendations. He called on an intercom for the next patient consultation. Chapter 11 Two weeks later, Mike received an invitation from Catherine and Clayton Otherson for a beach party celebration for the new member of the department, 
the recipient of the surgical award Catherine had successfully raised funds for. It was departmental, in a way, one of the invitations Mike could not turn down as chief of service. He arrived at Grand Isle just before midnight. Moderate cloud cover blanketed the moonlight, and the sea was tar black under a dark sky. No space was left between the eight vehicles lined side by side in the two drives, and he parked on the street. The Otherson house was dark. On the screen door, safety pinned to the screen at eye level, was a welcome note, handwritten and addressed to Dr. Boudreau, with directions to his bedroom in the Blanton's house next door, out of the country, the note said. The front door to the Blanton's house was unlocked. He heard sleeping sounds from a back master bedroom and left the interior lights off. He found his bedroom, stripped to his underwear, brushed his teeth, and slipped under the covers of the double bed. Surf sounds pulsed into the room through an open window, and a gentle offshore breeze rustled the white shears that framed the half-open window shade that flapped briefly with an occasional gust. The smell of the ocean carried the musk of seaweed and a faint stench of dying shellfish. He slept fitfully. At dawn, a toilet flushed, followed by a silence except for the surf and the cry of gulls. He waited till the sun was well above the horizon, then dressed in rumpled chinos and a T-shirt, crossed over to the Otherson cottage. The sparse grass was bent with dew and glinted in the sun. To the southwest, clouds blocked out the sky over the gulf. A front had stalled. Mike entered the house through the back door, lugging food and drink he had brought from New Orleans. Catherine was in the kitchen. Did you see Alice and Peter, she said. I heard them, Mike said. She's sick with her pregnancy, Catherine said without looking at him. Catherine wore shorts and a man's button-down light blue dress shirt, frayed at the collar, and was toasting English muffins and pan-frying bacon strips. Mike placed pastries and wine bottles on the counter and stacked beer next to the refrigerator. Catherine thanked him for his contribution and told him to pour himself coffee. Daughter Melissa slouched on the sofa. None of the guests were out of their rooms yet. In the morning light, Melissa had more of Catherine's perfect facial symmetry than Clayton's seemingly random collected features. Say hello, Catherine said to Melissa. Melissa had on flip-flops and a two-piece bathing suit that exposed long legs with curve of calves and thighs beyond the expectations of adolescence, an immature breast that left her halter top with loose folds. She said nothing, intent on a handheld electronic game that was the rage of kids half her age. Catherine handed Mike muffins and bacon on a small plate. Melissa pushed away a plate offered to her. It's a long time before lunch, Catherine said. No snacking. Alice and Peter Ravenel came in. Catherine pointed to the central island where they could choose their breakfast from the food she had laid out. Mike sat on the sofa two feet from Melissa. She turned her shoulders away from him and pretended to concentrate on her game. As they ate, Catherine talked to the Ravenels of storms and waves and beach erosion. Mike listened. Peter had more pride in his professional accomplishments than Mike thought appropriate for a beginner. I thank you and Dr. Otherson, Peter said to Catherine, for the endowed fellowship. The winner had not been publicly announced. Maybe that was the reason for the party. Thanks, Surgeon, Catherine said. 
Dr. McLaughlin told me of your work with the alumni, Peter said. Wife Alice said she had majored in social science at Oklahoma. Proud, too, she was that her choice of a major had prepared her for the world. Now she was proud to be a homemaker and a mother. Mike guessed Peter spent very little time with Alice. Other party guests were up. Doors slammed, toilets flushed in the back. Mike finished eating and took his dishes and utensils to the sink. He approached the passage between the back bedrooms and the kitchens to gaze at the framed photos on the wall. The largest photo was a regal full-length portrait of Catherine in a strapless, sleeveless white gown as Queen of Rex. Alice Ravenel stood, her hands protecting her belly, and shuffled over to see what Mike was looking at. Those were the days Catherine called to them. Three other framed color photos of Catherine in Mardi Gras ball gowns lined the wall. A white satin gown with a full-length cape. A playful lace-trimmed gown with a touch of Midsummer's Night's Dream. And a medieval-style ocean blue gown with a white linen collar. I wore that to Orpheus, Catherine said, pointing to the blue gown from the kitchen. Alice Ravenel silently belched, and Mike smelled sour, acid breath. She smiled an insincere apology. Amazing, Alice said. But she sounded judgmental, as if she thought it was frivolous. She was new to New Orleans and its ways. Clayton decided to marry me after Rex, Catherine said. He was living with his mother. She moved to Baltimore to be with him during training. Catherine came and stood next to Alice. Peter joined them in front of the pictures. Was his father alive, Alice asked. Killed in a deep-sea fishing accident when Clayton was a boy, his mother Beulah was a real dowager. She read the same books over and over. The Movie Goer, Light in August, Lanterns on the Levee, The Awakening. Clayton warned me, and I read all of them twice. That alone convinced her I was worthy of her son. The Hebert Otherson wedding was folklore. They were married in the cathedral with a reception for 1,200 that included the governors of Louisiana and Texas, two federal judges, three Broadway actors, no movie stars, a painter with collage art in the Whitney, an opera singer with a Met, four CEOs with Fortune 500 companies, and every native New Orleanian with class. Back in the Blanton's beach house after breakfast, Mike read surgery journals. Alice rested in the back bedroom with frequent trips to the toilet. Peter ran on the beach road to meet his training schedule for a marathon in Washington. At 11, Mike put on his swim trunks and a light short sleeve shirt and joined everyone next door. Guests with drinks in hand chatted in a crowded family room. Catherine assigned beach gear she'd organized for all to carry, and all the guests, minus Alice and Peter, were off to the beach for a pre-lunch swim. Clayton and Catherine led the way. The storm front was barely moving. The sky was gray overhead and gave the water a metallic look. The winds were offshore, and the gulf churned rare waves high enough to ride. Bathers had to bury umbrella poles in the sand as deep as they could to keep them from blowing away. Clayton set up an umbrella. Mike helped unfold aluminum deck chairs. Mike walked to the water's edge, he paused to watch. Melissa first, and then Catherine ran into the water. 
Catherine wore a tight one-piece suit designed for least resistance, and Melissa had a scanty two-piece number, the sparse cloth in the back lost in the crevice between her buns. Clayton joined Mike. Melissa's turned into a young lady, Mike said. She's too ripe for the boys and too hostile for me, Clayton said. She thinks Catherine is her captor sometimes. Stays out a lot, treats her mother with no respect. Clayton loosened his bathing suit string, adjusted the height of his suit, and retied. She's a real pain in the ass sometimes, he said. She doing well in school, Mike asked. Not really. You like Peter better now, Clayton said. Never disliked him, really. Thought he needed more training. His research will bring class to the service, Mike. Fat will be called obese from now on. There are some pretty deserving clinician scientists in the department, Mike said. They're working on mechanisms at the basic molecular level. Prime endowed chair material. We did right, Mike. Peter's got an MPH. The clinical stuff is important, too. He'll prove himself, Clayton said. Others had entered the water and were splashing each other in mock battle. Clayton held up his hand to stop Mike when the water was above their knee level. You know, Mike... I didn't appreciate your getting involved in the Rappaport case. Mike cringed. He obviously hadn't been invited for his personality or to welcome Peter and Alice. She needs that surgery, Clayton continued. It was a second opinion, Clayton, Mike said. I thought she was too young and not morbidly obese. Don't ever talk down to a colleague, Mike. That's what I taught you, and that's what you should do. I never talked you down. That's not what the mother said. That woman has serious psychological problems. Clayton grunted. You're not acting like one of us, Michael. You're talking like a fucking dermatologist. Catherine called to them, chest deep in water. Come on in. She waved. Mike dove into an oncoming wave, away from Catherine, on an angle to the shore. Clayton still stood thigh-deep in water. Once beyond the breakers, Mike began to swim the crawl straight out into deeper water. At the Blantons, after his swim, Mike showered and dressed in shorts and a T-shirt. He crossed to the Othersid house. Guests barely noticed him as they ate sandwiches they made themselves. Babs and I are taking Melissa along with Kathy and Harold to play tennis, Catherine said to him. Do you want to come along? We're taking the van. Catherine wore tennis white. She had been a tournament player in college. I didn't bring tennis stuff, Mike said. Plenty of extra rackets in the closet, Catherine said. Wear those shorts and your running shoes. We're going to the public courts next to the school. She found a racket. Try this. She had the experience to guess his size. The handle felt large enough. Catherine called to Melissa without looking at her. Are you ready? Melissa still sat on the sofa and didn't respond. She wasn't ready. Two couples were playing Scrabble sitting around a fold-up card table. I can pass, Mike said to Catherine, still not enthusiastic. Catherine ignored him. Melissa, get up. Melissa stood up. You'll be Dr. Boudreaux's partner. Melissa refused to change clothes. She would play tennis in swimwear and flip-flops. Melissa looked to Mike. You any good, she asked. 
Maybe, Mike said. Maybe not. After tennis, Mike saw Alice and Peter Ravenel in the Blanton family room. She sat on the sofa, her face pale, her eyes without sheen, like gauze. She nodded but didn't smile. Have a drink, Alice said. Mike took a Diet Dr. Pepper from the refrigerator. He took a straight-backed chair from the kitchen table and sat next to them. I'm eager to start fat surgery, Peter said. It's a real opportunity. Everyone has their own niche, Mike said. But you don't do it, Peter said. Alice groaned. Peter reached for her. It'll pass, she said. Peter sat back down. You've got a good reputation. Why not do the bypass, Peter asked. I don't like the results, Mike said. Most success with the obese still seems to be a change in lifestyle, and that means messing with the head, not cutting the belly. But there are successes, Peter said. Not enough for me, and weight loss doesn't last as long as it should. Clayton's got more cases than he can handle, Peter said. Well, the public's ready. The marketing is great. It's just not for me, Peter. I think that's a little holier than thou, Mike. Mike angered at his rudeness. Peter was the new guy. You think it's so great, Mike said. Don't charge for the procedure. Peter clenched his hands together. That's really unfair. You make enough. That's bullshit. I got tuitions coming up. Retirement. I don't give a damn what you do, Peter. Just don't tell me it's not the money. Alice heaved and threw up in her hands. Peter jumped up to help. She was wiping her face with the hem of her skirt. Her ankles were thick with swelling. Peter helped her to the back bedroom. Mike put his head back and closed his eyes. At times he thought surgery had made a wrong turn for profit a few years back, and now, with Peter and his quest for fortune, Mike felt lost in the jungle of ethics and profit. After dinner, Mike decided to leave early the next morning. He told Clayton, as he was walking back to the Blantons, Catherine ran up. Could you take Melissa back, she asked. At 7 a.m.? She wants to go to church with friends. Mike hesitated. Uh, sure, he said. He shrugged, but he was not thrilled with the idea. I'll have her ready and waiting, Catherine said. Mike left for New Orleans the next morning. Melissa put her feet up on the dashboard. It was the old Lincoln Continental Mike had had since med school, immune to damage, but he didn't like her attitude. Buckle up, he said. I don't like doctors. Everybody buckles, he said. Not everybody, she said, making no move to find her seatbelt. He reached across and buckled her in. She took out a cigarette to light up before they were off the island. No smoking, he said. Hey, you're out of control, man. You're not my father but she shoved the cigarette back into the pack, breaking it in the middle. The beach turn you sour, Mike asked, and wondered, what was the youngest age to turn into a witch? And I'm glad I'm not your father, he added. What a shitty thing to say, she said. She moved away from him, straining the seatbelt, and looked out the window. You play tennis pretty well, he offered. You expected me to be worse? I thought you might break an ankle in those flip-flops. But you're a pretty good athlete, like your mom. 
She played better than you expected, didn't she? I was surprised, he said. She laughed. You play young for an old guy. He concentrated on the driving. Melissa reached down in her bag. She pulled up a can of beer and popped the cap. I suppose you don't allow beer drinking, she said. She swallowed half the contents. He decided talking to children was not his strong point. She finished that can and threw it out the open window. Don't litter, he said. She opened a second can. He drove on without comment. This can she drank more slowly, and when she finished, she put the empty can in her bag. She put her head back on the headrest and closed her eyes. You like the party? Mike asked. They made me come. Doctors don't exactly rock. The weather had shifted. Cloud cover gave a gray cast to the countryside, and the world appeared less sharp than in sunlight. The dashboard clock had stopped working years ago, and Mike looked to his watch. They should be back by 10.15. Melissa leaned forward and twisted the radio dial. She swore at the preachers giving sermons and the country music. She settled for an acid rock sound. Mike turned the radio down. You don't like that, she said. He ignored her. You need a little cool, dude, she said. Dr. Boudreaux to you. She shrugged, leaned back, and closed her eyes. Her mouth opened. She snorted loudly on inhale. He pulled up to the Otherson mansion 40 minutes later and nudged Melissa with his fist to wake her. She was startled at first, until she discovered she was home. She undid her seatbelt. I'm glad you're not my father, she said. She grabbed her bag and got out. Mike handed her a key Catherine had given him in case the house staff had not arrived yet and Melissa had forgotten hers. Chapter 12 Catherine worked alone at the beach house the day after the guests left. Clayton had taken his car to return early in the morning to go to the hospital. As arranged, Melissa had spent the night with a school friend and would go straight to school from her friend's house. A caretaker would bring a cleaning crew to clean the house later in the week. She worked to secure valuables and pack up things they could no longer risk leaving in an empty house on the beach. Theft was not epidemic on the aisle, but it was persistent. Mostly kids, and some professionals, had stolen TVs, shotguns, a silver service, cash and credit cards, a kayak, and a chainsaw. The party was not even a modest success, probably doomed to failure from the start. She enjoyed entertaining when everything went well. She saw it as a skill to make people relax and enjoy learning about each other. Of course, she couldn't expect too much from the parties where professionals were invited out of obligation. Great parties were based on guests carefully chosen, studied for their skills and their compatible adversities. And in general, family weekends didn't work well. Family dynamics overlapped, and there was the universal dread of an explosive confrontation. Dinner parties were best. And that's where the surgeons were persistent failures. It was more than being self-centered, which they all were. Their worlds were too focused and crammed full of their never-ending challenges. They were bees drawn to their honey task, 
and driven to return to the hive in a field among vibrant, fluttering butterflies and soaring dragonflies with transparent wings and swizzle-stick tails. Most parties needed teamwork. Surgeons failed again. Wives and significant others were more burdens than joys. This weekend was painfully predictable, guarded conversation with snide whispers for the most part. And all that parting babble about great time and a wonderful weekend were pure lies, necessary but still untrue. Mike Boudreau had been the only single at the party. She had worried about him being alone, but he had not seemed self-conscious at all. The tennis had animated him. He was surprisingly accomplished and in good shape. He apparently worked out frequently. Even more surprising, he had teased Melissa into actually trying to improve her game, something she, as a mother, could never do. She was not sure that placing Mike in the Blanton house with Peter and Alice Ravenel had been a good idea. Catherine was quickly aware of Alice's unhappiness, not only with her pregnancy, which was making her miserable, but she suspected Alice had come to hate Peter in ways that only a marriage could provoke. Had Alice been in an arranged marriage? Certainly not the way she and Clayton had been thrown together for convenience of social acceptance and advancement. And they were from cultures too different to allow arranged marriages for daughters with marginal potential for catching a man. Alice was from the North, Peter from South Carolina. Maybe Alice had latched onto Peter for security. Alice wasn't pretty, definitely not sexy. Peter was a good catch for her. She saw a future of financial stability she had never known. She probably had never known love either and had made marriage an intellectual reality for what she thought was best for her and her children. When they were alone, Alice had mentioned Mike to her. She had been attracted to Mike. Catherine suspected it was an attraction that Alice had never felt for Peter. Alice had asked questions about Mike. Had he been married? Did she like him? Was he gay? Catherine really didn't know a lot about Mike, who had always been confidently unrevealing on social occasions when they had met. And most of what she knew, she'd learned from this former girlfriend, the artist. Besides, she would never tell Alice anything personal about Mike, even if she knew. She didn't like Alice. When Alice asked if Mike came to most apartment parties alone, Catherine had a chance to put the little hussy on another trail. He avoids department parties, she said. We rarely see him. He came to a faculty retreat with an artist from the quarter. A lovely girl, really, she said matter-of-factly. Do they, um, uh, like, uh, live together, Alice had said, undeterred by a wave of nausea that made her face pale. I don't think so, Catherine answered. Mike's antenna would not pick up Alice's vibes. He was too busy for that, and her pregnancy had made her more unattractive than she probably was even as a desperate virgin, even if that had been an unlikely virtue. He's cute, Alice had said in a high voice, as if Mike were a newborn puppy. Catherine had found herself curious about Mike. Curious, especially about what his true nature was after hearing Rosemary Dayside's unfulfilled longings for him at the faculty retreat. 
She had not seen any meanness in him during the entire weekend. On the tennis court, he laughed freely with a sense of humor that was charmingly aimed at himself at times. But he had been guarded, too, and his interest in the other guest was definitely muted. She had sensed a capacity for caring, more than the caring surgeons needed to do what they did. Mike had a caring for humans who were not patients, too. She couldn't exactly pinpoint why she felt that way, but she felt sure it was there. After the party, she had fallen asleep wondering about Mike. Clayton breathed heavily on a single bed on the other side of the room. In the pitch dark with her eyes closed, she could see an image of Mike. It was more of a feeling than a picture, but it seemed to exist in front of her somewhere, although never quite real, always starting formless, then with soft-edged details changing one at a time. It never became a complete image. And today, as she packed the silver and the TV sets into the car to take back to the city, the pleasant memory of those pre-sleep images stayed with her, even without the quiet of a dark room after midnight. Chapter 13 The annual fall meeting of the American College of Surgeons was at the convention center in San Francisco. Mike chose carefully the scientific sessions he wanted to attend. There were many choices running concurrently. This session was on angiogenesis, presented by a Robinson Award winner. Clayton was not there, and the session was sparsely attended compared to the clinical sessions, which dealt with surgical innovations and techniques. Mike liked the science. He liked the exploration of ideas that no one had ever thought of before. If he'd had the time, he would have established a research lab. But that was incompatible with his department's need for clinical productivity. And the school did not support research by MDs hired to be clinically productive. Mike chatted with friends during the breaks and ate a bratwurst and drank a soda for lunch from a portable vending cart near the entrance. At one o'clock, he went to the plenary session. Clayton, a member of the Board of Governors, was giving a talk on bariatric surgery. Clayton had done enough cases to qualify as a top 10 bariatric surgeon in the country. All but a few of the 2,000 seats in the auditorium were taken. Mike moved down the side aisle and took a seat as the current president of the Board of Regents introduced Clayton. He noted that Clayton would be honored this evening at 7 o'clock with the presentation of the Penderock Award for Distinguished Contribution to the Advancement of Surgery for the Obese. Clayton read his speech. He used only the occasional visual aid, but he presented detailed statistics on what he called the New Orleans experience. The results presented were generally comparable with what others were experiencing. Nationally, many patients did not lose weight after the surgery, and gaining weight after an initial loss was common. Clayton was specific with anecdotal successes, but Mike noted he did not present detailed quality-of-life data or psychological assessments. Presenting soft data about people's lives was not the national norm, but it would have improved the quality of Clayton's talk. Clayton finished well. Overall, Mike couldn't suppress a little envious pride in Clayton's success. Clayton was building a national reputation. 
and although the procedure definitely wasn't Mike's personal favorite, for those who embraced it, it was obvious Clayton's reputation was doing very well outside Louisiana. And he'd made it through the last few months without a major complication. At the evening session, Mike sat next to Clayton in the front row. But before the awards presentation by the amazing OBGYN surgeon from Kenya, famous for her selfless surgery on girls mutilated with ritual clerectomy, was to speak. Your speech was impressive, Mike said to Clayton as he sat down next to him during the break. Tell that to your OR committee, Clayton said. Let them chew on our advancements and get them off my back. Mike agreed. Janet the orthopedist would not attend this meeting. Few orthopedists attended. But Mike would make her aware that Clayton was not working in isolation in his surgical treatment of the obese. That was only fair, and if Clayton altered his indications, it might be acceptable to the committee to let him continue with supervision. You ought to be doing more of the obese cases, Mike. You thinking about it, Clayton said? Not yet. I still like the routine stuff in the trauma, Mike said. The auditorium was filling fast. On the stage, the meeting coordinators were lining up chairs where the dignitaries and the honorees, including Clayton, would sit. Clayton's cell phone vibrated. He listened intently. I'm going to get my award in minutes, damn it. Just wait there. I'll be there as soon as I can, Clayton said. Mike could hear a voice between Clayton's urgent whispers, but he could not make out the words. I've got to go. I'm on stage, Clayton said before he rang off. Clayton turned to Mike. Melissa's been arrested. She called Catherine from a paddy wagon. He paused. Would you go, Mike? I could join you as soon as we're finished. She's not hurt or anything. Of course, Mike said. He would miss the doctor from Kenya, but he didn't want Clayton distracted as the college honored him. And there would be videos available after the session. Catherine's in the hotel, Clayton said. I'll leave you messages, Mike said, let you know what I can work out. Mike walked to the hotel. Catherine stood near the entrance, cell phone in hand, a shoulder strap bag at her side. Where is she, Mike said. Is Clayton coming? As soon as he can get away from the awards ceremony. She waved to the doorman for a taxi. Melissa said she was going shopping, but she's at City Hall demonstrating. Mike opened the taxi door and she slid across the seat to give him room. She leaned forward to tell the driver to drop them on Grove near Van Ness. She seemed more resigned than distressed. What's she demonstrating against, Mike asked. Gay marriage. She feels strongly about gay rights? Catherine shook her head. She likes the excitement of demonstrating about anything in front of City Hall in San Francisco. Mike looked out at the pedestrians. And you approve? It drives Clayton crazy, Catherine said. But there is no harm in it. She's not hurting anyone. She got arrested, Mike thought but he would not bring it up. Goodlett Place was packed with protesters. The driver pointed out a paddy wagon and three police cars. 
Agitated people moved in the streets in different directions, like random blood cells bounding off each other, distracted by anger. He followed Catherine, zigzagging into open spaces to make their way toward the paddy wagon. Near the wagon, they pushed and shoved people aside to get to the rear doors. A uniformed street cop grabbed Catherine's arm. My daughter's in there, Catherine yelled over the shout sirens and shuffle of crowd movement. She's been arrested, the cop said. I've come to take her home. She doesn't even live here. She'll be booked. There's no need to... Uh... The cop turned away as two police in riot gear waved nightsticks and dragged up another woman protester. The cop opened only one of the rear doors, and the woman screamed as the three officers stuffed her into the wagon. Catherine couldn't see. She grabbed Mike's arm to pull herself up. I can't see her either, Mike said. The wagon doors closed. The policeman banged on the side of the wagon and pulled out. Catherine dialed Melissa's cell number. She let it ring until it cut to message response. Call me, Catherine said. They've probably confiscated it, Mike said. Where will they take her? Catherine asked the policeman. He was looking up the street, and she moved in front of him so he could not ignore her. It's a simple question, she said loudly. Now the cop looked down as if he hadn't understood her. She asked him again. Central booking, Pier 57, the cop said. Mike and Catherine walked to where the cab should be waiting. He's left, Catherine said. They walked more than a half mile up Van Ness before they found another taxi. When they arrived at Central Booking, Mike called Clayton and left a message. At Central Booking, people and cops milled around in disorganized small groups that overlapped. People smoked and drank beer from cans. A woman gave a lyrical laugh. A youth leaned against a wall and plucked a guitar. He made no music and attracted no attention. Near the door to Central Booking, the mood was more hostile. Protesters under arrest were lined up at the back of the wagon and photographed before being herded inside. Mike and Catherine saw Melissa and got close enough to wave, but they could not get close enough to shout to her. How do I get to see my daughter? Catherine asked an official. The official stared blankly. When she's booked, there'll be a list. It might take hours. That's not acceptable, Catherine said. The official shrugged. Clayton called. He was on his way. He arrived a few minutes later. Mike waited outside with Catherine and Clayton for some words that they would be able to access the station. The crowd murmur was hostile as people found places to sit and stretch, ready to wait as long as needed for news of friends and family. I can't believe she'd do this, Clayton grumbled. She didn't expect to get arrested, Catherine said. It's embarrassing, Clayton said. Mike pretended he wasn't listening. Let her grow up, Catherine said. She thinks only of herself, Clayton said. You could be a little more understanding, Catherine scolded. By 8 a.m. the next morning, the crowds had thinned. Only Clayton was allowed into the building to stand in a line for information. Mike waited outside with Catherine. Thanks, Michael, Catherine said. I couldn't have done it without you. Glad to help, Mike said. He had stayed because Clayton had asked him to. 
afraid he might have to leave Catherine alone in an unpredictable crowd. But he was sure that Catherine had not needed him or anyone. She remained level-headed. She was forceful without hysteria, and he admired her special resilience. Women protesters wandered out after the booking, subdued and exhausted. Most of the men were jailed. Melissa came out with Clayton and ran to her mother. Was it terrible? Catherine asked. We had a ball, Melissa said. Precious Jesus, Clayton whispered to Mike. Mike shared a cab with him back to the hotel. He rested briefly before he went to his first meeting of the day. The second and third installments of The Surgeon's Wife are available in podcast number 20 and 21. The Surgeon's Wife is available in print and online at Amazon, Kindle, Barnes & Noble, Smashwords, and selected bookstores. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. This podcast is a production of StoryInLiteraryFiction.com.